Might be okay, but we're good. Just needed some love, Matt. <laughs> some of my earliest memories uh, as a child growing up in church. Um, they're good ones, but then they're peculiar ones, interesting ones. One, uh, something that's odd is that in West Baltimore City, I grew up at a Presbyterian church, <laughs> surrounded by other like Baptist churches and uh, um, maybe Pentecostal, I guess, up and down where we were. Uh, and so even, you know, as black American culture, deeply ingrained in church going, that's just a part of it. So even my friends that would talk about church and church music and stuff like that, they would listen about us singing our hymns and they're like, hymns, <laughs> what are those? Uh, but then we had this um, time when we, I got a little bit older where this very revolutionary thing happened at our church. We brought the drums out. We got drums. Something even more interesting happened when we brought the drums out. Some people would get up and leave when the drums came out. Even more interesting that the reason the drums came out on that specific Sunday because that's when the youth would participate in worship service. And, you know, all, all of this I'm thinking through in, in retrospect, I'm observing it. Uh, and by the way, my first pastor that actually instituted that youth Sunday is actually sitting right there. But uh, as I'm observing these things, um, keeping track and keeping note of it, and then you get a little bit older uh, and you start working jobs and some of your church family comes to your work. And I don't know if anybody's ever had a retail job or have worked with the public in a way and you just got these like belligerent customers and so You ever had it happen by someone you know? It's weird. <laughs> You're left looking like... And then even more, you start going to church meetings. The gloves come off in church meetings. Now, here's the unspoken part about that. There was a profession I made in my life. It was an unspoken profession. It was implicit, but it was this creed that I lived by as a Christian when I was younger. And the creed was that I believe that what it means to be Christian is to be a good person. And you go to church because you are a good person and you're surrounded by other good people and you treat them good and they treat you good. At least make sure they see these things because I lived a very duplicitous life. But that was my creed. That's what it means to be a Christian. Do good things. Let people see the good things and they reciprocate. So as I had this collection of counter viewpoints, I made the decision, this is all stupid. This is dumb. I made it in my heart. It's like, this is a waste of time. Why are we actually even playing this game? You're not even good people. There are little, a lot of definitions under deconstruction today. When we think about that, and... Even people who do like studies on deconstruction um, don't even have like a 
concise definition for it, depending on who you talk to, it'll change. But I think what I'm addressing here, I would like to understand it as at least a strongly held belief or once strongly held belief or prevailing belief that is now being renounced. Either even components of that belief being renounced. And if I went through what I went through, maybe 15 years later, then I'd probably be on some platform talking about my deconstruction from Christianity, justifying it in the disgustingness that I've seen from people and the distrust that I've seen from people and the anger and hatred that I've seen from people, the hypocritical nature I've seen from people. And not to say that flippantly, to say that it's real. Now, what's interesting is, even though I know that we've been in 1 Corinthians 15 for what seems about two years, there are more verses that come after 11. I'm not addressing it fully, but I do want to highlight that what happens after verse 11, there's an instance where the Jews and the Greeks are actually tearing down a belief. But what's different about what they're doing is they're tearing down an actual claim. There's a claim that says that there is resurrection after death, and they are taking that claim and they are tearing it down. They're rejecting it, but they're rejecting the claim. What's different about what I did is I took this expectation about the things that I expected to see, the things that I thought were good and I had my hope in, and when those things got torn down, I renounced the thing I ought not tear down, the faith, the claim. That's our predicament. See, sometimes in this life, that's what we're trusting. We're actually trusting in the fruit of the gospel rather than the actual gospel. We're trusting in the things we know come as a result of the gospel rather than the actual gospel. Our profession of faith which everybody has one. It's not a Christian thing. Every single human has a profession or statement of faith, implicit or explicit. But sometimes what we struggle with is a desire to be held up in this life by the fruit rather than the root or the vine. I'm sure none of us have ever tried to grab onto a fruit and swing from it. Won't work out very well. Try the branch. The branch will probably work out differently. And I want to know if you can recognize any of the fruit in your life that you've probably placed your hope in, expectations. There are a couple of things that Tim Keller once addressed. I'm going to list those and a couple others. But these things are actually what contribute mostly to people's deconstructing or tearing away from the faith. These pieces of fruit that are good and they're sweet, but it's when you place your hope in that and then when that withers, you renounce what you ought not renounce. The truth claim, our actual hope. What are those things? Some of them are loving community, very good thing, but that's, what the, that's the expectation, right? We expect to be in loving community. We place our hope in loving community. And when someone is mean or they ghost us or they shame us, when a person acts like a person, we renounce the faith. Maybe a beautiful marriage. The expectations of the beautiful marriage, of what even marriage even is, is that two people, they're crazy about each other, they love each other, and they stay that way for the rest of their lives. And there is no work, there is no toil, there's no contending. 
in the moment there is any type of toil and contention, well, this isn't what I expected it to be. I'm gone. We, we do that with our faith. Long-lasting friendships, happiness, pleasure. Our hope is in pleasure. Pleasure is also a fruit of the gospel. But you place your hope in pleasure and you don't have it. You say, what can I do to get it? I must do it. I want it now. I want it by any means. False view of sin. Like mine. Where I'm sitting in this building filled with sinful people. Shocked over their sin. Because there's a false view of sin. We place our hope in these things, and what we do is we end up building these structures of these statements of faith or these creeds, like my creed that I had, these models that we recite to ourselves. And it's important to know that these things exist. I'm going to show you an example of one. Charles Bukowski, he was, a, he was an American poet and novelist. This is what he said. I saw this thing like um, a couple times. It's like three times in one week. And I'm like, I never heard of Charles Bukowski, by the way, but... Um, I need to write this down. Since we are here to kill war, we're here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. Some good stuff. I mean, it's actually, those are good things. There's no war, it's good. Flawless life, that's good. Death is afraid of you, it's good. But is it true? I'm wondering what happened, what helped to phrase this model. What was the statement of faith? I imagine the statement of faith being something like, I believe that life is worth living because it's good and it's pleasing and it's pleasurable all the time. There is no interference in life. There is no outward interference in life. And it's meant to be enjoyable the entire time. So anything that interrupts that, like, war or the odds or even death I can create some things that might not be true about them the thing about death is that death reorients us no matter what your implicit statement of faith is uh, death is where where the chickens come home to roost whatever the profession is that we make of ourselves whatever the profession is we make about our lives it's death that will either validate or expose it in all of us. So what I talked about in this passage some months ago is why we ought to believe. We looked at the apologetic nature of this passage and why we ought to believe, why we ought to be Christian, and Matt has unfolded that very well a couple weeks ago in this same passage. So today I want to look at the content of it and what we ought to believe. There are a lot of things that we say we believe as professing Christians, but we're actually believing maybe exterior things or third-party things or the fruit rather than the root. What we ought to believe. This profession that we ought to believe is connected to us through a creed. We recite a creed. We've been doing it for a few weeks now at the end of the service. We recite the Apostles' Creed, and the creed uh, just comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe. I believe. The earliest creed, potentially, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, is right here in our passage. It's very significant. That is, Paul starts, 
I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This, this gospel, this word that has become very familiar, especially in modern Christianity, it's still an actual thing. It's an actual message. Paul says that it was delivered by preaching. It was received by hearing. It's affirmed through persevering in which you stand. And what that means, this is your hope. And it's exclusively for the salvation of the church. It is by which you are being saved. It's the only thing by which you are being saved. The church being us in the building? No, the church being anyone who believes and calls on the name of the Lord anyone, any past, or you can do like I did, and you can do the things, the good stuff, some turmoil comes into your life, you renounce, and Paul says, you would have been doing that in vain, you believed in vain. I think about this when I think about believing in vain. That's kind of one of the thoughts I had when I was younger. Because one of the things I was thinking when I'm like, it's flawed thinking, but still, give me grace. One of the things I'm thinking, I'm looking at people, I'm like, man, you guys not even working to try to be good. Like, at least I do the work. I mean, you guys don't know my life actually. I hide it from you. (laughs) I'm at least doing the work to make it look good. You're not even doing the work. What's the point in doing all this stuff? You know how much football I'm missing right now? This is in vain. And so this thing that Paul delivered that was received through hearing, that they persevere and stand in this, the hope of their salvation, this message, Paul says, is of first importance. This is the message we ought to believe. I want you to think about all the things you connect to your Christianity that have latched on to that word Christianity, even latched on to this word gospel that is latched on to this good news. And I want you to pay attention to what Paul is about to highlight right here, this preeminent profession. This is our profession. It's the most significant profession. It's the only thing that matters for us to grasp onto. It's the only thing that matters for you to share. If you can't share one thing with a person, share this. This is the reason we're here. This ought to be the reason any church is here. Paul is about to say the quiet part out loud. What must we do to fix this mess? The biblical way of saying it is what must we do to believe or be saved? And Paul says you must believe. What must we believe? He highlights, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Something I want to highlight here, going back to the fact that this is a profession handed down that connects us to our ancient siblings, our brothers and sisters. It was handed down to Paul. I'm delivering to you the most important thing that was also delivered to me. I'm not bringing it to you. This is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. It was handed down. This profession that is ours. And then the gospel. Bare bones gospel. The pure, raw 
gospel. It doesn't change when you go to the other culture next to you, the other town, the other state, the other country. It's the gospel that every human being needs. Contextually, I mean, it might be different. Like here, I'd call it the farm-to-table gospel. Straight from the farm to the table, there's nothing cut, there's no preservatives, there's none of that mess. It's sweet. This is the message. And this is the message that we need to grasp onto and claim as our profession. Because I don't know if you caught that from Mr. Bukowski's quote, death won't fear to take you. Suffering won't fear to take you. Calamity won't fear to take you. I've known not one human being that I've heard of scaring death away. Not one mere human being. This is the message. He starts, Christ died. Why did Christ die? Because someone needs to die. The message of our world that we need to share with every single human being is that it's broken. They know it. You won't meet one that says, you know what, I like this. This is going pretty well. It's broken and it's sinful. It's sinful because God made the world and everything in it, yet his creature decided to act as the creator. And it tore relationship. Sin entered into our hearts. People have asked the question, why would God send people to hell for not believing? He doesn't. He sends you to hell because that's the sinner's destiny. We are conditioned. We are sinful. From that condition emit sinful actions. Like pride and unbelief. Sin is the reason death exists. But he says that Christ died for our sin. They need to know there's a problem because then the solution is available. A problem exists for us all, but the solution is available to us all. He died for our sins. It needs to be Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, the son of man. It can't be a mere human being. The virgin birth is important because it can't be born of human and human. It needs to be born of God, the Savior. It needs to be an unblemished one. If any one of us with the bold heart and the courage say, you know what, Lord, take me. I'm willing to die for all humanity. I want to do this very the most altruistic thing in all of human history. The Lord will look at you and say, who is going to stand in your place? Because you're blemished. You need a substitute. It has to be human because humans have to die. But it must be Christ because this lamb needs to be unblemished, needs to be perfect, needs to be spotless. And he died for our sins. And he rose, I mean, he, buried, he was buried. The burial is significant because it's his body. A lot of things in the early church were probably competing with, you know, the physical and the, the spiritual, and people were claiming that certain truths were only spiritual in nature. Some of that stuff still exists today where they'll make you believe that certain things aren't actually the case. This is just, you know, uh, um, uh, theoretical or it's conceptual. Um, uh, ethereal is the word I'm looking for. Thank you, Lord. Uh, and, and it doesn't really matter, but the burial is so significant to us. Because it's his body. It's God, the invisible one, being embodied. And not only was he embodied, but his body was punctured, bruised, beaten, and it was buried. The significance comes in the next part because he raised to life. 
So this punctured, bruised, beaten body was raised in glory. That's hope for us. Because we have wounds and punctures and we get beaten and we're bruised. But these ailing bodies will be raised in glory. And before they're raised in glory, we go through this process called sanctification, where the Lord transforms us to become his children. And then he starts shaving off all the dead parts that we would look more and more like the king that we profess to believe in. That's the message. That's the gospel. There is nothing else. Everything else is a fruit. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, uh, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's hope. That's why we cling to this. That's why we ought not believe in the hope that comes from the fruit of the gospel. Those things are good, and they are also a gift from God. But when we put our hope in it, we take our eyes off of him and put our eyes on his stuff. Maybe people who profess Jesus Christ and say, well, why do you believe in Jesus? Why, why do you profess faith in Jesus? Because he gets me the stuff. It's through him that I can get this nice life and I can get these people or I can get this community or I can get health. I'll pray to him and ask him for these things and I trust him for it, but you could still be having your hope in a fruit of who he is. That's why one of the first things of clarity Jesus tells his disciples is, hey, hey, friendship with me involves a cross. That's our profession it's handed down to Paul. Paul hands it down to the church in Corinth. And now we recite it here. 2023, in the year of our Lord. And we know this and we continue to profess this because the scriptures reveal this. The hope of the resurrection, it's actualized in the future tomorrow, but the power of the resurrection is realized today. We have endurance, we have strength, we have hope because of the resurrection. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we ought to believe because the scriptures tell us. The difference between a creed and scripture is important. The creeds that we recite, um, there's this Latin phrase, I don't remember it, but uh, I know what it means. It means a rule that is ruled. I think it's like norma nomans or something like that. Nomada nomans. But it's a rule that is ruled, which is good. That's why we recite the Apostles' Creed. We recite what we believe to be true, and it governs us. It steers us. It's what we direct our lives off of. It's how it orders our worldview. It's how we make decisions. But Scripture is called the rule that rules. And the creed and the statements of faith that we build ought to be governed by the scriptures. That's why it's so important. That's why the creeds exist. 
There were so many people making statements of faith about Jesus, about the Christian, and it wasn't rooted in the scriptures. And you had a bunch of Christians get together and say, no, this is what we believe. This is what we cling to in accordance with the scriptures. That's the cadence of this passage. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's significant. The scriptures are the source of strength. They're the source of strength for us to be reminded in trials, in suffering, in doubts, in fears. I think about Jesus asking Peter, he say, hey, will you leave me? And Peter is saying, where else am I going to go? We renounce the truth of the scriptures. Where else will you go for hope? But fruit that withers away, that dies. The scriptures have a myriad of things to remind us of. I know many people who have been broken over their sin and shame where it's like, I don't belong in this group of people who seem to have it all together and seem to be good. I'm too distraught over the fact that I'm so sinful. For some reason, all I can do is think about all the things that I've done in my past and I'm broken over it. And Jesus says, you're blessed then. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the ones who think that they're rich in their spirit that have no reason to come to the eternal banker. When you're poor and you're bankrupt in your spirit, you need me. You're blessed. I don't have all the things that I need or <laughs> I need all the things that I want. You need to be reminded in the scriptures that says we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens through Christ. You're tired and beaten down. Just your life has been a hard life. Jesus says, if you're tired and weary, come to me. I'll give you rest. The world would love to offer you so many things to grasp holds onto and to, to, to chase now. And they say, hey, if you're beaten down and, and you're going through this thing in life, then you need to change now. Here are all the different steps you can make to change now with the immediacy. But Isaiah says, those who wait on the Lord, will renew their strength. They'll mount up on wings like eagles, running, never growing weary, walking, never fainting. Lord, what if I just have so many temptations in my life? This life is very hard. I wish that I had more discipline and there's things all around me that make me want to sin against you and it just makes me want to just reject it all. This hard Christian life of trying to serve you and be honorable to you and, and bring glory to your name through it, it, turning away from sin just seems too hard. It's the scriptures that tell you that, hey, there is no temptation that will overtake you that isn't uncommon to man. As a matter of fact, the Lord will give you strength and he'll also provide you a way of escape every time. there's suffering in your life, if there's pain, if there are bruises and punctures, and then maybe you have some Job-type friends. If you're unfamiliar with Job, they were just trash. They weren't trash. Bad advice. Some advice that we give to each other. And maybe you might be thinking that the suffering in your life as a result of these consultations is because there's something you just did wrong. Something's wrong with you. Something's wrong between you and God 
because there is no reason that this suffering would be in your life. There's no reason that these things would be happening to you over and over and over again. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, there's one answer. You're justified. We have peace with God. There's another answer. There's peace. There's no turmoil between you and the Lord. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The scriptures remind us of what's true so that we can cling on to the profession, what we ought to believe. That's what we ought to believe. The fruit that you grasp onto might wither away and fall, and you might be tempted to say, I'm doing away with this profession. But you shouldn't have had hope in the fruit in the first place. Have hope in the fruit provider, the vine. Turn with me really quickly to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Delighting in the law of the Lord can mean two things and both simultaneously at the same time. One, the law, his commands, what's good, what he orders for us, the way he tells us how to live, his order of life, his ways and his thoughts that are ultimately higher than ours. Delighting in those things, even though you fail at them, will bring you joy. Number two, the law can also just be seen as the word of God. Delighting in his word knowing that you who are weak and, and weary must go back to it over and over and over again. Those who, who I know who are going through this deconstructing journey or who are tired and have these false accusations or these false conclusions based off of fruit they've been grasping over, I don't look down on them, but I look across from them and I'm telling you, it's your profession that was wrong. You had hope in the wrong thing. You need to come back to the scriptures because it's the pain and the trials that makes you want to distance yourself from the scriptures. I don't like what this says. It tastes bitter to me. And I have compassion because I didn't do anything not to be that bitter person. It's the Lord's grace that has allowed me to still look at his scriptures and find them sweet, even when all it's doing is describing my failures. We delight in the law of the Lord. The righteous delight in the law of the Lord. Because it's the rule that rules, and it's also the rule that reminds us of the true confession, what we ought to believe. And you will be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. The passage doesn't say that there won't be storms, but it will say that even in the midst of storms and trial, you will bear fruit. If you don't believe me, 
talk to someone who has experienced a life of suffering and loves the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have this scripture with us, Lord. So many decisions you could have made. You could have made a decision to say, hey, this is true. Remember it and go on. Lord, you also could have made a decision to say, hey, I'm going to transform you in salvation and bring you home with me. You did none of those things. You left us here. And you left us with your scripture. If there is any one of us here right now who have a firm grasp on fruit and not you, pry their hands, Father. Keep us, Lord, in the loving hope of the gospel. The gospel in which we stand and by which we are being saved. Glory to your name. Through our wounds and our bruises and our punctures that we experience in, your life, in this life, Lord, I pray that we will bring glory to your name. Amen. Each week we are reminded of Jesus' death through communion. It's the death that takes us back to the profession. That's why we do it every week, to be reminded of it. His broken body for us, his poured out blood for us. By his stripes we are healed through his broken body. Through his blood we are cleansed. It is this reality in history that makes us profess that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born under the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he will come to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, Make your profession in Christ and you will dwell in the land of the living. Let's be reminded 